Let's open our Bibles to the Gospel of John. Now this is interesting to me because um, finishing up the prophecy conference last weekend and um, now beginning, finishing Luke, starting John. And I noticed that we were in Psalm 1 this morning. I thought that's interesting because our cross-references go something like this. Genesis 1, John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, and our psalm reading this morning was Psalm 1. And um, I've entitled the message Grace and Truth, an Introduction to John. Now, on Wednesday, we'll come back and um, the Gospel of John is actually divided into five different sections. And what Paul read for us earlier, verses 1 through 18, is actually section 1. So my goal this morning is to accomplish an introduction of John himself, uh, why he is unique, a little bit of his temperament and personality, and um, I especially zeroed in on verse 17 where it talks about the law coming through Moses and grace and truth through Jesus Christ. So I've entitled this Grace and Truth, an introduction to the gospel of John. Now, John's main focus and main point that he is going to make is the deity of Jesus Christ. So I want to begin in chapter one by going to chapter 20 where he actually concludes his gospel with a therefore. So let's turn to John 20. John is very selective because he's going to write his book around seven I am statements and seven miracles. I'll get into more detail on that in just a little bit. But in closing, the purpose in verse 30 tells us the whole reason John is writing this gospel. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written, why? That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So John's whole focus and his point is that um, we would come to the conclusion that Jesus um, is part of the Godhead, the deity of Jesus Christ. Now, a good place to begin with this uh, well, let me just give you a little bit of a, a background before I dive in on why John is unique. First of all, John's name actually means Yahweh has been gracious. Um, we're going to be introduced to John the Baptist here. Even though John talks about baptizing him, he doesn't really, it's not really recorded that he did it, even though in the other Gospels, He clearly does baptize him, as implied here. But relating to John the Baptist, they were actually um, cousins. Jesus was six months younger than John. John the Baptist's mother was Elizabeth, and they would have known each other when they were younger. Uh, John was one of the 12 disciples. 
He was an ordinary fisherman from the Galilee, the Capernaum area. He had a brother whose name was James. Um, Evidently, um, they had a temper problem because one time when the Lord was going through one of the towns and he was completely rejected, James and John come up and say, shall we call down fire from heaven and consume them like Elijah? And so I believe the Lord nicknamed them sons of thunder for that reason. They probably had a quick temper. John was also competitive. Um, They got their mom, Salome. Remember, the disciples really believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They were going to Jerusalem and the kingdom was gonna be established. So if you're his closest people around him, one day John got his mother to go to the Lord and say, now Lord, when you get to Jerusalem, would you allow John to sit on one side and would you allow James to sit on the other side? So he was um, um, competitive and argumentative and um, I mean, after all, when you read John's gospel, John is the only one that mentions that he could outrun Peter to the tomb. <laughs> That's not mentioned anywhere else. We also know that he was part of what's called um, the inner three disciples, Peter, James, and John. They were allowed to go up on a Mount of Transfiguration. They were allowed to be with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane which always got me thinking about that. If God is not a respecter of persons, how is it that he chose these three to be a part of his inner circle? And the only answer I can come up with is they wanted it more, that they desired to be with the Lord that much more. So it's possible for man to have a strong, stronger desire to be with the Lord, but God loves all people the same because God is love. Good place for an amen? amen? I could be wrong, but it makes sense. It makes sense to me. John was the only disciple at the cross. John uh, was asked by Jesus to take care of his mother Mary when he was hanging on the cross. Um, John, look at your mother. Mary, look at your son. And from that point on, John took care of Mary. He refers to himself as that disciple whom Jesus loved, and he was the only disciple who did not die a martyr's death. All the other disciples died a martyr's death, not John. If you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, uh, they imply through history that they tried to kill John in Ephesus by boiling him in oil, and it didn't work. He couldn't cook. He wouldn't be cooked. And uh, so he was exiled to the island of Patmos. Um, One of my things that I've always wanted to do and was able to do was to visit Patmos. In the um, earlier years when we were going to Israel, we could afford to do the side trips. Those days are over. And one of the side trips was uh, visiting the seven churches. Uh, visited four or five out of the seven. But we also got to take a boat out to Patmos. 
And it was the most beautiful, um, one of the most beautiful islands that you've ever seen. And of course, when you get there, they show you the cave where John lived (laughs) and where he slept at night and which rock was his pillow. Now, if you know me, you know that that's a sea site, (laughs) not an A site. But um, that is where the, the Lord gave to John and the reason he wasn't martyred is the Lord wasn't done with him. He wanted to keep John alive, and in 96 AD, the book of Revelation uh, was written. Um, John wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. The book of Revelation and the gospel that we're diving into this morning. So, one, two, three, four, five books in all. John writes the gospel. He's very selective. The gospel of John revolves around seven miracles and seven I am statements. That's why we went to the end of the book and said, well, there's many other things. If we'd go to John 21, it said so many other things that if they were all written down, the world itself couldn't contain the books because of all the things that Jesus did. But John only does this. He picks seven miracles and seven I am statements. If you're into taking notes, I'll give you the miracles and you can look them up later. The first one, he turns the water into wine in chapter two. Uh, Jesus heals the nobleman's son in chapter four. He heals the paralytic man in chapter 5. He feeds the 5,000 in chapter 6. He walks on water in chapter 6. Jesus heals the blind man in chapter 9. And um, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. Those are the miracles. Now the I am statements, when we read them, I want you to notice that they will be capitalized. The Gospel of John reveals God to man. And it goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 13, when Moses was standing before the burning bush, and Moses asked God, When I say the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said, I am who I am. Say, I am has sent me to you. So now John's gospel answers the I am with seven I am statements. Again, if you're taking notes, here they are. I am the bread of life, chapter six. I am the light of the world, chapter eight. I am the door, chapter 10. I am the good shepherd, chapter 10. I am the resurrection and the life, chapter 11. I am the way, the truth, and the life, chapter 14. And I am the vine, in chapter 15. Jesus was the voice coming from the burning bush. And that's exactly the point that um, John is making. Now, the number seven is a number of significance. I got sidetracked, um, tried to remember Dr. Ivan Pannon's name, 
during the first service uh, because it deals with the subject. A.W. Bullinger wrote a book, Biblical Numerology, which is a study of what we call gametria. What is gametria? Um, in the Hebrew alphabet and in the Greek alphabet, you can have a letter, but it has a numerical value attributed to it. That what gives meaning and sense when we read about the Antichrist saying here's his name and the number of his name calculates to 666. Well, how does that happen? Through what we call gametria. Now, Dr. Ivan Panin grew up as a non-believer in Russia, uh, went to Yale University, converted, became a Christian, and as, as a mathematician, he began to notice certain patterns that would, were evolving as he was studying it in the Greek and the Hebrew. And he came to the conclusion that from the original writings, you cannot take out, as Jesus would say, a jot or a tittle. A jot is a little line or a dot. And he's saying you can't even remove that much from the original scriptures without throwing off the perfection of the Bible. And then he wrote 50,000 pages over a 50-year period of time. He completely dedicated his life to this study. And if you ever want to find something very, very interesting or people who are challenging you about the scriptures, say, why don't you just Google Dr. Ivan Pannon and do a little research if you want your mind blown. He even, this was the late 1800s, early 1900s, he says, I'll give a $100,000 reward to anybody who can prove me wrong. Um, I would do it just for the challenge of trying to get the 100 grand. <laughs> nobody ever collected because nobody could uh, prove um, his what we call gametria. So let's just take the number seven. I gave you that background because I'm gonna dwell now just on the number of seven, sometimes called the number of perfection or completion. Uh, there are, he chose seven miracles. He chose seven I am statements. There's a reason he picked seven. Seven miracles, seven I am statements, seven is the number of perfection or completion. When he wrote the book of Revelation, it really jumps out at you because there are seven letters to seven churches. There are seven seal judgments. There are seven trumpet judgments. There are seven bowl judgments. There are seven angels. There are seven lampstands. There are seven stars. There's a seven-year tribulation period. This goes back to Daniel 9, when the Lord told Daniel that he would deal um, with the nation of the city of Jerusalem and the Jewish people. And it's important that you keep that in context and who he's talking to. Now, talking to the church, he says this 70 times seven, or 490 years, is given to your people in the city of Jerusalem, that he would deal with them. 483 of them has been complete, so there's still one seven-year period of time that God owes to Israel. It's interesting to me from Revelation chapter six through Revelation, when he comes back again, we have exactly a seven-year period of time. Man, 
up till this time has been on the earth roughly 6,000 years. When the Lord comes back, we have how long is the millennial kingdom? 1,000 years. So overall, the number seven comes in again, but this time we'll have man on planet earth for 7,000 years. I find that interesting. Also, there's seven days in a week. What happens um, after Saturday? Well, you start over with the first day of the week, Sunday. Um, there are seven colors in a rainbow. There's seven notes in a scale. Do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti. That's seven. And then you start over again with what? Another do. So it's a number of completion, and we find it all all over. And so then eight, which happens to be the number of the Lord, is a number of new beginnings. But seven would be the number of completion. The other three gospel we call the synoptic gospel. Why? They're similar. In contrast to John, which is different from the other three. John uses the name of the Lord more than all of the other ones. For instance, in Mark, he uses Jesus' name 13 times. Luke, 88 times. Matthew uses Jesus' name 151 times. But John uses Jesus' name 247 times. The Gospel of John does not cover, there will be no genealogy, his heritage like you find in, in Matthew and then Luke. Uh, There's no manger study of Jesus' birth. Uh, There's no baptism. And um, my wife called me on this one, and she says, what do you mean there's no baptism? It's John the Baptist. The whole story is is there. And I said, well, let me check my notes. And I looked at it and read it. And even though John the Baptist is referred to, it's implied. The reason I probably put this down in my notes years ago was because um, remember when Jesus says, baptize me, John. And he says, no, I'm not worthy. It should be you that are, is baptizing me. And he says, no, do it. So all things might be fulfilled. So technically, there is no baptism of Jesus, even though um, it's very much a part of section two, the presentation of John the Baptist. Uh, there's no parables in the Gospel of, of John. Um, the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus explains what will be happening in the last days. We find those in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but we do not find them in John. The whole thing John is wanting to accomplish is one thing, that when he's done writing his gospel, that you're persuaded, like we just read, that Jesus is God. That's the main point. If we were studying Luke, Luke's main job is to present the humanity of Jesus rather than his deity. If I would give you one verse that would describe the two, it would be Isaiah 9.16, where it says, for unto us a child is born. That would be Luke. Unto us a son is given, that would be John, because that's the heavenly perspective. If you're taking notes, again, it divides the, Gospel of John divides nicely into five different sections. When we're done this morning, we will be through with section one because section one is verses one through 18. 
the deity of Christ. Section two is um, verse 19 through chapter four, the presentation of the Son of God. Chapter, uh, the third section is the longest, uh, five through 12. And it contains the opposition to the Son of God and why the religious leaders hated him so. Section four is chapters 13 through 17 where he gets very personal with his disciples more than any of the other gospels. And the last section, chapter section five is 18 through 21, the crucifixion and the resurrection of the Lord. Now, let's go back to John chapter one. And as we look at John Chapter one, let's just read, I just want to read the first verse, first um, three verses here. John one, verse one. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Now when I read, in the beginning, what does that make you think of? Genesis chapter one. So let's go back to Genesis chapter one. Genesis chapter one. John purposely opens his gospel with in the beginning because he wants you to think of Genesis chapter one. In Genesis chapter one, it says, in the beginning, God. But the word there for God in the Hebrew is the word Elohim. It would actually read, like this, in the beginning, gods, plural. Singular for God is El, plural is Elohim. So what we're reading in verse one is in the beginning, we have the deity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the beginning, gods created the heavens and the earth. Now if you look down to verse 26, what he created man, then God said, let us, There it is, plural. Let us make man in our, plural, image, according to our likeness. So John, in his gospel, John is saying that he was there in the beginning. We're gonna find that in Genesis 1, John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1. We'll be going through all those uh, scriptures this morning. So let's go back to um, John's gospel. And I'm gonna connect John 1.1 with John 1.14. So in John 1 we read, in beginning was the word. All right, in verse 14, I'm gonna read the whole verse and then come back and show how the two um, dovetail together. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, John 1 1 says, in beginning was the word. John 1.14 says, the word became flesh. In John 1.1, it says, the word was with God. In verse 14, it says, the word dwelt among us. In John 1.14, It says the word was God 
And chapter 14, it says, we beheld his glory full of grace and truth. Remember, in the beginning was the word. The word became flesh. The word was with God. The word dwelt among us. The word was God, full of grace and truth. They explain, verse 14 explains in detail, verse one. Simply, John is saying that Jesus is God, um, but yet you've all run across people that say, well, Jesus never said he was God. Well, let's look at the Old Testament first of all. Again, if you're taking notes, I quoted um, um, earlier, for unto us a child is given, unto us a son is born. That's Isaiah 9. If you go a couple more verses to verse 6, this is what it says, concerning the son that was born and the son that was given. He will be called the Almighty God, the Everlasting Father. That's attributed to the son that was given. In Micah 5, 2, it says, whose going forth is from everlasting. That means he's always been. And that before there was anything that was made that was made, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have eternally existed. Now, if that doesn't blow your mind, I don't know what will. Everything came into being according to uh, Genesis 1.1 uh, by, the, by the spoken word of God. And then in Isaiah 7.14, he's called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And um, that's the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, when he was confronted by the religious leaders in John 8, John 14, Revelation 21, Revelation 22, Jesus said he was God, and this is why they wanted to kill him. And the high priest came right out and asked him, said, just tell us. And he says, it's as you say. And then he rent his clothes. He said, blasphemy. What more proof do we need? He said he was God. And um, that was what, one of the reasons that we'll study um, for uh, his death. If you look at John 1, verse 9, again, it refers to the, remember John 1 is all about him being the creator. Verse 9 of John 1, this was the true light which gives light to every man who comes into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, And the world did not know him. He came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. Oh, the irony of this statement. You ever wonder why you are? You ever wonder why you're here? You ever wonder what's the meaning of my life? You ever wonder what am I, what is my purpose? Your purpose is to know your creator. Good place for an amen. Amen. Your reason for being, your reason for anything, is that you can know who your creator is. The irony of this is Jesus created everything, including you. David said, you knew me before I was formed in my mother's womb, and you laid out all my days before me. 
And there's nowhere that I can go that I can get away from you. If I go to heaven, you're there. If I go to hell, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and go to the farthest place on this planet, you're still there. But whether or not we have made peace with him and whether or not we're one with him is completely up to us. So we find here that he came into his own and his own received him not. He's talking about Israel, the Jewish people, who are temporarily on hold until the fullness of the Gentile comes in, when the rapture takes place. And then it says, and then all Israel will be saved. God simply blinded them temporarily. It says blindness has happened in part, temporarily. They're blinded. But he's not through with them. We talk about replacement theology and dominionism quite often, but I don't think you can hear it enough. And that is the idea that because the Jews rejected Jesus, then Jesus has rejected, God has rejected the Jews. It's called replacement theology. All the promises that would go to, hi Mike. I didn't call him Jim, I called him Mike. Uh, That all the promises that were promised to Israel are null and void. Why? Because of this verse right here. If you read Romans 9, 10, and 11, it becomes very apparent real quick that's not true. Romans 11, has God forsaken his people? Paul says, certainly not. Certainly not. But the clock has not yet begun to tick where he deals directly with them, with Moses, with the Elijah, with the 144,000. And so it says in Romans, and so all Israel will be saved. So I can't um, probably quote that enough and speak against dominionism or replacement theology or the anti-Semitism that we see rising on a daily basis in the world. Do not we see this happening on a, a daily basis? And the days, as the Lord said, are be- going to become worse and worse and these are just the beginning of sorrows. Uh, The shootings that we hear about, what, now on a daily basis somewhere? And uh, I only expect that to escalate as the days get darker. I fully expect the dumbing down of the gospel to be more and more as time goes on. As our speakers so eloquently put it last week, um, none of them had assignments. I said, you speak on what the Lord tells you to speak on. What did all of them speak on? Socialism, creeping into our government. Socialism, creeping into the church. Letting down the barriers and um, saying that there are many different ways to get to God. And we have to compromise. And we need a president like Bernie Sanders who came in second place in a democratic debate Can you believe that one? The younger generation um, feels they've been slighted and they feel that they're owed something. They have no idea what they're talking about when it gets into what our country was founded on and where it's come today. My question is, how long suffering and how forbearing is our Lord gonna be until he says enough is enough is enough? Do you know that 
There was a drone strike in Saudi Arabia yesterday that took out half of Saudi Arabia's oil production in one day. Half of its oil production in one day. Elijah Abraham has been telling me for years that Iran will hit Saudi Arabia before it hits Israel. And I said, why? He says, it's a Sunni Shuite thing. They hate each other more than they actually hate Israel. And they're beefing up, and this is really a rabbit trail here, uh, Iran is uh, pretty much saying, triple dog dare you, bring it on. And this drone attack, um, Trump was quick to jump on it and say that we have reserves and we'll do everything in our power to um, um, make sure that you're up and running again. For what it's worth, sounds like a Buffalo Springfield song to me, right? <laughs> Only old timers had got that one. Um, it, it sounds to me that um, in Ezekiel 38, the nations that don't go to war against Russia, Iran, and um, um, Syria, and Turkey, is Saudi Arabia. In Ezekiel 38, it's called Sheba and Dedan. Well, those are two cities in Saudi Arabia. They're standing on the sidelines. They're not even involved in that war. They're not coming against Israel. Matter of fact, they're, they're sitting down and talking with Israel. Anyway, that was a total sidetrack. But that, like I said, that just happened yesterday. So we see it escalating. And what are we supposed to do when the Bible says when these things begin to happen? Look up. Redemption draws nigh. And also when these things, it says don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as a matter of some is. When? And that much more is to see the day approaching. And now I always like to throw out the question, well, either see it or don't. Do you see the day approaching? Then if you do, what are you supposed to do? Fellowship more and more, not less and less. Another good place for an amen. So that we can stay on a cutting edge. All right, let's go back to, um, I left off, we need to turn now to Colossians chapter 1. So let's move over to Colossians chapter 1. Remember I said Genesis 1, John 1, Colossians 1. In Colossians 1 verse 15, we read, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, that are in heaven, that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were made through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church, who is, is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. So we, we find in the book of Colossians, um, again, Colossians 1, that he's a creator. Not over, only of the physical universe, but it gets into the area of principalities and powers, which are the angels. All right, Hebrews 
chapter one. Hebrews chapter one, picking it up in verse eight. The idea here, and as Paul writes, I believe Paul is the author, as he writes to the Hebrew, he's explaining to them the new covenant and the superiority of Jesus. Uh, One example would be over the Levitical priesthood that Jesus is a better high priest after the order of Melchizedek than over the order of the Levitical priesthood because he continually lives where the high priest would come and die, another high priest would come and die, Jesus would be different. He would be after the order of Melchizedek, who I believe is a Christophanes, which is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus. So we read here as we're talking about angels, in verse eight, but he says, um, but he, to the son he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. And the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You can fold them up. And uh, they shall be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not fail. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool? Jesus said, it's absolutely necessary that I go back to my Father. Because if I don't go, I can't send the Holy Spirit. And until then, as we speak this morning, he is at the right hand of the Father, as our high priest interceding for you and I. Well, why would we need interceding for? Well, Revelation 12 says, the accuser of the brethren accuses me and you night and day before the Father. And so, as soon as the accusation is made, the Lord who is our high priest interceding for us goes, hope stop, that's been paid for. I paid for that myself. That sin, that accusation, I took care of on Calvary's cross. End of discussion, end of issue. What else you got to complain about, Lucifer? So he'll go on to the next one. Revelation 12 says that he'll eventually be cast down. There's rejoicing in heaven, but it says woe to the inhabitants of the earth because The devil has come down to you with great wrath knowing he has just a short time. How much is a short time? Three and a half years. Who does he go after? Israel. And that's a whole other chapter. What I wanted to point out here in Hebrews, Genesis 1, John 1, Colossians 1, now Hebrews 1 are saying all the same thing. Jesus Christ is the creator. Good place for an amen. That's John's point, what he's, what he's wanting to make here. Let's go back to um, John chapter one, look at verse 17, where we read, I got the title for morning's message from this verse. For the law was given through Moses, 
but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Let's look at the law first. To do so, you need to turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 32. And I want to look at the day the law was given. Exodus 32. The background here is that Moses has come down and the people have made themselves a golden calf. As he's observing the golden calf and the people dancing naked before this golden idol, um, verse 26, Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, who is ever on the Lord's side, let him come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered together to him. And he said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, let every man put on his sword on his side and go in and out from the entrance to entrance throughout the camp and let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did according to the words of Moses and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. So when the law was given, The law came by Moses. We read in Romans 8, 2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ has made me free from the law of sin and death. It's telling us here when the law came, there was death. 1 Corinthians 15, the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. Here's my point. When the law was given, 3,000 people died on that day. Now, with that, let's go back to uh, the Gospel of John, verse 17, and look at part B of it. The law came through Moses. What happened when the law was given? Well, 3,000 people died. But it says grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter two, we have Peter getting up, now filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember, in Acts chapter one, the Lord says, I want you guys to do nothing. I want you to wait. I want you to go in Jerusalem and wait for the promise to come. And when he comes, he's gonna empower you to be witnesses for me in Jerusalem and Judea and the innermost parts of the world but don't do a thing until the Holy Spirit shows up. So they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter two. And it was Peter who got up and began to give the history and he was witnessing to the Jewish people. But for the first time under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. As the people were listening and when he finally gets to the part where it says that God raised up Jesus and exalted him, Uh, he was their Messiah. Uh, Verse 36, therefore let all the house of Israel know surely that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, ooh, dart to the heart, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. We call this conviction. And let me just get a little sidetracked here. I like to say, You can't have conversion without conviction. You have to be convicted. You have to be aware that you are a sinner. 
And that awareness has to be a heartfelt conviction that I am just exactly what the Bible says I am. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none that are good, no, not none. That my heart is deceitfully wicked of all things who can know it. And only the Holy Spirit can bring that conviction. What happened here? Peter said, you guys crucified your own Messiah. What was the result? Yeah, we did. And it says they were cut to the heart. And then they said to Peter, men and brethren, what do we do now? And Peter said, repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise, what's the promise? The Holy Spirit is to you and to your children and to all who are far off as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Then all those who gladly received his word were baptized. Here's where it gets interesting. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Huh, 3,000 people died the day the law was given because the law brings death and 3,000 people were made alive the day the spirit was given? Oh, I'm sure that's just a coincidence. No, it's not. The deeper you go, the deeper it gets. You have to know the old to appreciate the new. You have to understand the contrast to appreciate the contrasts that are there. And what a picture of what the law does. It pronounces you guilty. It pronounces me guilty. Jesus said, don't think I've come to destroy the law. I've not. I simply came to fulfill it. Well, what does that mean? Well, you see, he's the only one who did it right. He's the only one that never sinned. The commandments, you think there's 10? No, there's 613. And he fulfilled every single one of them and he never sinned one time. And as a result, he fulfilled the law. That's the law? He did it. Anybody else want to raise their hand and claim they did it too? I don't see a hand anywhere. I wonder if David Hockey would be disappointed at this point. (laughs) He would have had to be here for the conference because David always... Uh, um, says Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible. And um, it was just a blessing having him with us here last week. Well, um, let's begin to uh, wind this up here. And the Holy Spirit being given, 3,000 people getting saved. My friends, the word of God is so orchestrated and, and um, no wonder the father says that he holds his word up above even his own name. Um, let's look at one more verse, the last verse, and we'll have completed section one. John chapter one, verse 18 concludes section one. And it simply says, no one has seen God at any time the only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him, making himself one with God. Our last verse this morning is 
John chapter 14. So turn there, and we will conclude with Philip's question, what I like to call Philip's question. It needs to have a little bit of background. So I want to go to the last verse of chapter 13. I do not believe a chapter should have been added here. I believe it's a continuing thought from the last verse in chapter 13 where Jesus is talking to Peter. Peter says, I'll never deny you. And the Lord says in verse 38, will you lay down your life for my sake, Peter? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Then continue the train of thought. Let not your heart, to me that's singular, I think he's looking at Peter. Let not your, it applies to us, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, receive you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And where I go you know and the way you know. Thomas jumps in and says, Lord, we don't know the where, where you're going. How can we know the way? And here's one of the I am statements. I am. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. My friends, you better get used to it because there's gonna be more and more uh, people saying to true born-again Bible-believing believers, are you so arrogant and to say that this is the only way that a person can go to heaven? Is that what you're saying? How loving is that? I mean, all these other religions are wrong and your way is the only way? And I said, I didn't say that. I said, this book says that. And if you got a problem with it, then the problem's not with me, it's with this book. If you're asking me if I believe the book, yes. And I will declare it. And I want to declare it. You know why? Because the Lord says if I do that, he'll declare me before my Father's in heaven. But if I back away from it and deny it, oh yeah, there might be another way to heaven. And say something like that, I'm denying him before a man saying he's the only way then it says, my father will also deny you. So we have to be worried about what he thinks and not what the world thinks. Good place for an amen. You can't let the world, Romans 12 verse one, be not conformed to this world. Don't let this world conform you, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why? So you can prove what is a perfect an acceptable will of God. What is the will of God? That people will know there's no other name under heaven whereby you must be saved. It's not through regeneration, regeneration, your yin and your yang, or reincarnation, no. There's one God, it's not Allah. I'm pretty sure it's not me. No, I'm very sure it's not me. (laughs) And he is the only way. But that's going to marginalize you even more and more as the world gets darker and darker. I think you guys are very well aware of that. So in John 14, Thomas jumps in. The Lord said, no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Now Philip jumps in, and we'll close with this. Philip said to him, Lord, 
Just show us the Father. And we'll be satisfied. Or it'll suffice us. And I like what the Lord says. Philip, have I been with you so long? And yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? In the words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe in me for the sake of the works themselves. Philip, do you ever see a man walk on water before? You ever see a blind man heal? Did you ever see a lame man walk? Did you ever see me speak to Lazarus who's been dead for four days and come back to life? If you don't believe me, Philip, because I say so, you've been with me and you've seen the works that have been done. So believe because of the works that I've done. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, I will do that, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Philip's question was answered. The point of the Gospel of John is singular as far as I can tell, and it is that you would be persuaded and believe that Jesus is God. Amen? I'll stand and close in prayer. Lord, thank you for your word this morning as we start on in the Gospel of John. We pray, Lord, that you would direct our steps and bless, Lord, this this study. Lord, I thank you that we even see your hand as we begin a new book, we begin a new psalm, and um, getting close to beginning a new season. So, Lord Jesus, uh, we're humbled by your grace, we thank you that um, we know this truth. And you told us um, when we understand this truth that it'll set us free. Knowing, Lord, that it's all about grace and not about works, we are so grateful. And we give you all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. For a man saying he's the only way, then it says, my father will also deny you. So we have to be worried about what he thinks and not what the world thinks. Good place for an amen. You can't let the world, Romans 12 verse one, be not conformed to this world. Don't let this world conform you, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why? So you can prove what is the perfect and acceptable will of God. What is the will of God? that people will know there's no other name under heaven whereby you must be saved. It's not through regeneration, regeneration, your yin and your yang, or reincarnation, no. There's one God, it's not Allah. I'm pretty sure it's not me. No, I'm very sure it's not me. (laughs) And he is the only way. But that's gonna marginalize you even more and more as the world gets darker and darker. I think you guys are very well aware of that. So in John 14, Thomas jumps in. The Lord said, no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, 
you know him and have seen him. Now Philip jumps in, and we'll close with this. Philip said to him, Lord, just show us the Father, and we'll be satisfied, or it'll suffice us. And I like what the Lord says. Philip, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? In the words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe in me for the sake of the works themselves. Philip, do you ever see a man walk on water before? You ever see a blind man healed? Did you ever see a lame man walk? Did you ever see me speak to Lazarus who's been dead for four days and come back to life? If you don't believe me, Philip, because I say so, you've been with me and you've seen the works that have been done. So believe because of the works that I've done. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, I will do that, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Philip's question was answered. The point of the Gospel of John is singular as far as I can tell, and it is that you would be persuaded and believe that Jesus is God. Amen? I'll stand and close in prayer. Lord, thank you for your word this morning as we start on in the Gospel of John. We pray, Lord, that you would direct our steps and bless, Lord, this, this study. Lord, I thank you that we even see your hand as we begin a new book, we begin a new psalm, and um, getting close to beginning a new season. So Lord Jesus, uh, we're humbled by your grace. We thank you that um, we know this truth. And you told us um, when we understand this truth that it'll set us free. Knowing, Lord, that it's all about grace and not about works, we are so grateful. And we give you all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.